Scott had set the tone on Stoner's Highway with his incredible, delicate climbing. I was determined to emulate his style. I climbed up off the belay about five feet, clipped a piton, a relic from the 70s, all rusted, a maybe piece of protection, as in maybe it will hold if you fall. And then I climbed 20 feet out to the left, headed for a crack system. At this point, I was on a small perch, contemplating my fall with my toes on some good footholds and my hands on some decent holds as well, eyeing the next moves. It's at this point in climbing when complete focus is necessary. I zoned into the moment, delicately stepped up, eyeing a handhold, leaned into it and stepped up to where I could play some gear. I was safe again and climbed up to a decently protected crack system to the next belay. Stoner's Highway demanded this type of dangerous, delicate, in the moment type climbing, pitch after pitch. Scott seemed to get the most difficult pitches with 30 and even 40 foot runouts on 510 climbing. Welcome to episode 14 of the Dirtbag State of Mind podcast from the Climbing Zine. I am Luke Mihal. We are in the home stretch of American Climber, my 2016 memoir. This episode is brought to you by Sticker Art, where every sticker tells a story. You can check them out at stickerart.com. They are based out of Durango, Colorado, same as us. And if you enter in Dirtbag as a coupon code at checkout, you will get 20% off any other items. You can support the climbing zine at the links in our show notes. You can also check out the link in our bio on Instagram. And I always say the number one way to support the climbing zine is to subscribe to it. It'll keep the stories flowing in your mailbox. And even if you don't have a permanent mailbox, you can choose the dirtbag treatment option. And that means we'll check in with you before each issue comes out and we'll find out your current borrowed mailbox. My dirt bags, my climbers, and the people who want to be dirt bag climbers. Let's get into episode 14 of the Dirt Bag State of Mind podcast. At the college, I was immediately up here with my former professors. I was a difficult student, to say the least. Always have been, from my early days up until the day I finally graduated. Half of it was me wanting to challenge the system. The other half was just simply being a stubborn pain in the ass. I'd have to collaborate with teachers I'd pissed off and questioned in their classrooms. I also crossed paths with the professor who gave me the only F I ever received in my life in the Bob Dylan course. One day, at a poetry event, we were joking about it, and I said something to him. I said, I think Bob Dylan would be proud of my F. Without hesitation, he replied in a southern drawl and with a wise smile, I think you're right. When a man reaches this point in life, approaching 30 and still single, and he doesn't want to be single, at every social event, there's an underlying purpose, to meet someone. And it goes beyond someone to share a night with or two. It's looking for someone to maybe share the rest of your life with. All the other parts were set. I had a job, a home I loved, cold as it was, and I had confidence. So I looked and looked, and sometimes the too much looking leads to nothing because you're looking too much. My first couple years back, I was indeed that guy. Plus, Gunny isn't exactly a hub for single, good-looking young adults. It's a small college town where most people move on to bigger and better after college. At night, I'd walk across campus to go home and be alone. And there would be lights still on in the offices, and I wonder if my love was in one of those offices. 
if she was a lonely professor too, looking for someone to keep her warm. And if she was the future mother of my children, my partner that I would grow old with in this comfortable but cold remote part of Colorado. After two cold winters with no one to keep me warm and a spring on the way, the old familiar Gunnison angst was getting to me. The fall before, I indeed met a professor that I proclaim my affections for, but she had a boyfriend back east and turned away my efforts for reciprocation. I was going crazy on the inside, but outward, retained my collared shirt and slacks cool. And of course, the Freedom Mobile let me retain my cool when I was out and about on the great American road. I learned some things, though. Lonely as I was, I could still focus and have purpose. I learned a little trick about writing, which in turn made me realize how slow of a learner I was. In order to be a writer, you must write. You must write in a routine, unless you're the Hunter S. Thompson type, but that path never worked for me. I could barely spell my name or hold a conversation on drugs, let alone write a masterpiece. Five to seven days a week, depending on how much I was climbing, I was writing. The pathways in my brain became more connected to the process, and it got easier and easier as time went by. Before, I'd simply like the outlet, the idea of being a writer. But once I was writing all the time, I realized it's this blue-collar thing. Roll up your sleeves and get the work done. That's not all of it. Maybe it was all of it for the press release, boring, matter-of-fact type writing. But for the creative stuff, it was all in. The discipline, the magic, and relating an actual experience. When those all came together, well, it was like magic. In my climbing, I realized I didn't need to live climbing 24-7 to hang on to my abilities. If anything, the full-on climber life was holding me back, stealing the magic from it. When I only had a few hours to climb or just the weekend, I was so much more in the moment. I also started to cross-train to diversify and started mountain biking and running more. Something was especially zen about trail running, another key to unlocking the endurance puzzle. Running was how I got her, or maybe she was trying to get me. The professor, Lynn, who I was chasing, shot me down, so I forgot about her, or at least I tried to. But then, in the peak of the spring, when Gunnison is finally released from the clutches of winter, she reached out to me. It was just a drink with friends, and I was hesitant at first, my guarded heart protecting me. But you should never let your heart be fully protected. After all, the heart holds the key to everything. With a simple touch, a reaching out, it was all over, or rather it was on. I had a lady. Lynn was touched by my gesture of telling her my feelings for her back in the autumn, but she could simply not reciprocate. She broke up with her boyfriend back east shortly after, but she was heartbroken and needed time to mend. The winter seemed to do that for her, and she was ready to love again. And so was I. We recreated in the lands of Gunnison, running, biking, and climbing, all part of the process in courting a beautiful woman in a beautiful land. She had striking dark hair, long legs, and a vibrant energy. She had an adorable golden retriever I loved instantly. The stairs to her bedroom were like a short climb to release and a level of intimacy I've been trying to reach for some time now. All the cards were on the table instantly. She had her own epic of sadness from a previous relationship gone wrong. I told her of mine. I don't know if it's just a sad world out there, but so many of the women I dated in the past had something very sad and wrong happen to them. Some had been raped. Lynn had a former lover try to kill her. It was very traumatic, and she was very guarded when she told me. It didn't bother me one bit. 
I made so many mistakes in my own life. It was oddly comforting to hear her own tale of surviving and moving on from such trauma. Right off the bat, another card was on the table. She had taken a job back east to be a professor there. She accepted the job with plans to continue with the boyfriend, but he broke up with her anyways after she took the position. I was used to being transient and living in the moment. It hardly affected my feelings for her. I also had a problem with vision, planning my life ahead of time. So we lay together under the cover of love for many hours, becoming days, weeks, and months. All I really wanted to do was get to know her and make love to her and live under this cover of love. She lived in a house all by herself and we had nothing in the world to stop us. We traveled to hot springs and bathed naked under the azure of the sky, our bodies glistening in the sun. We made love in a tent. I could hardly keep up with her. Men, we are the aggressors going in for the hunt, the kill. But there's no kill in love, at least not when you're making it. The sex drive of a woman is much more infinite than the man. We come out charging, she plays coy and pushes away and then comes back with a fury. I loved that fury and tried to keep up. It was a joy of exhaustion. My work life was not matching the joy of my love life, other than the constant change that is all life. The president had a stroke and nearly died. I was given another boss, a new person to report to. She knew nothing of mountain culture and was all business, and she was a bad business person. She might as well have been the wicked witch of the West. She and I did not connect, to say the least. She knew nothing about the mountains. Her hero was Bobby Knight, the old basketball coach famous for his temper and throwing chairs into the court when he was angry. Change was brewing. Lynn saw the same thing in my new boss. They would be in the same meeting sometimes, and we made fun of her together. In the midst of making love one night, I told Lynn I loved her. I'd never told another lover that before. I guess I was waiting 30 fucking years, and I'd never done that. The game of love can be a slow play, that's for sure. I was in love with her, and I did my best to not stray from the moment. Then, all of a sudden, talks and plans were made. She was moving, and I was staying. Or was I? I started to entertain the idea. I looked at the place in Pennsylvania where she would be teaching. How far was it from climbing? How important was my lifestyle out in Gunny? It was everything. But how important was love? Love was everything, too. Sometimes I go back and think of that woman, that house, that period of time. The stage was set for a happy but domesticated life. I had a steady job with a good paycheck and benefits. The only thing missing was a family, and a beautiful woman is where I had to begin. And I never would have got the girl if I was a depressed guy living in the basement and washing dishes. Maybe I was just coming into my own, or maybe I was just finally making some good decisions. Eventually, I had to really start thinking. The girl was about to slip through my hands and be a thousand miles away on the wrong side of the country. In the midst of all this was the downturn of the economy. The college was receiving less of a budget than the previous year, and everyone was worried about what might happen to them. I was initially worried, but taking stock of my job, I realized my greatest days might be behind me there. The president, who I admired so much, was no longer my boss, and he was still recovering from a stroke. He could no longer look out after me and be my mentor and I had no respect or motivation coming from my new boss. Secretly, I was hoping my job would be in jeopardy. Also, I was tired of the meetings, the politics, and the formalities. The honeymoon was over. When the budget for the next year came in, it was announced that my position would be cut to halftime. Outwardly, I was disappointed. After all, I worked so hard to get to where I was, and it now seemed like I'd worked so much for nothing. Inside, the dirtbag in me saw that I would have more freedom. 
I'd only have to be at the office 20 hours a week. The honeymoon had just begun with Lynn, only a few months into it, and her upcoming move stared us in the face. I don't think either one of us wanted to think about it. We just wanted to continue to live and love together. We planned a trip right before she was going to move. We would go to Boulder together for a wedding and then go out to Yosemite where we could bask in some final days of her time out west. Weddings bring up some crazy energy. We all think about the love being shared when the two people are getting married, but we also think about our own lives. The wedding was small and felt a little sad. The bride was upset that people couldn't make it, and I heard her openly complain about that to Lynn. Lynn had nothing but loyalty running through her veins and was a good friend. There was a lot of downtime at this wedding without alcohol, and I was restless and bored. I texted my old friend Mark, who was now living in Yosemite, about how boring the wedding was. Lynn looked over my shoulder and read the text and was upset with me. It should have been the perfect night. We were living in a great love affair in Boulder, a perfect place for romance, and we had an exquisite hotel room booked for the night right downtown. Everything was bubbling to the surface, though. All I could do was think about that. If I wanted this to continue, I'd have to move back to the flatlands, to the East Coast. I did want it to continue, but I did not want to move to Pennsylvania. In the hotel room that night, we broke up. I lamented about how I could not move out East. She cried and I felt horribly guilty. We made love that night, but without the love. We were both holding on to what was now the past. Then the next morning, we got into her car and drove to Yosemite. The tension in the car was thick. There was always an uncertainty when I went to Yosemite. Some travel to the accessible big wall mecca of the world and never make it back. Lives lost in the pursuit of climbing. That was always in the back of my mind. This time it was different. I was about to lose love. We stopped in Salt Lake City to spend the night. We stayed at Adam's place, even though he wasn't there. He was off having some adventure. Another day of driving, and we arrived in Yosemite. Mark and Scott, who were roommates all through college, both ended up in Yosemite. We joked that they were heterosexual life partners. Scott was living at this place called The Greenhouse, a perfect little old school cabin set on the edge of the big meadow, just 10 minutes from the valley floor in this little community of Foresta. If you hiked up a small hill, you could see the very top of El Cap poking out. It was my favorite little house in the world. I always made sure I got to Yosemite for at least one week every year when I was working this nine to five life. It was usually this time of year before college started back up and I could escape. It wasn't ideal. Yosemite was still in the grips of summer and was quite warm. Staying at the greenhouse was ideal, though. No pesky rangers bothering you like they do in Camp 4. And the life there was so energetic and relaxing. It was my happy place. The year before, Mark was house-sitting for Scott, and I fell in love. I fell in love with this place. In crowded big Yosemite, who knew there was such a place of tranquility and peace so close? The meadow, living up to its name, the Big Meadow, stretched for as far as the eye could see, with only a couple big barns next to the house, and that was it. The house was originally home to a family of farmers who lived there when a railroad went by. Now the house was home to two lucky environmental educators who usually lived there for a year or two and then moved on. It was a golden moment to have Scott living there. With all the simple beauty, there was a tragedy that occurred there that you simply had to know about. Mark solemnly told me one day, there was a murder here. 
It was a brutal and terrible killing. On a day like any other day I spent there, a summer day. Joey Armstrong, an environmental educator just like Scott, was killed there during the summer of 1999 by a man who had already committed several other murders that year. I found out a few days into my time there, and I felt a profound sadness, even though I didn't know the woman. The peace that existed in that space was stolen from someone. There was a little gravestone on the property by some apple trees. I walked over one day to pay tribute and clean it off a little bit. There was a journal there at the house that dated all the way back to when the murder happened, and I read many entries by a man that had spent a lot of time at the greenhouse, who knew Joey and was getting over the loss. Throughout the years, there were entries by people who had passed through. I loved that stuff, and after 51 weeks of being in an office and staring at a computer screen, sitting in a little rustic house and reading and writing was the perfect remedy. I cried for Joey, more than I ever have for a stranger, much less one who died a decade ago. The summer of 1999 meant so much to me because it was the summer I took off from home and almost ended it all. How sad and how grateful I was that I did not take my own life or have some accident when I was so careless and so hopelessly driving the American highways. The sadness of this love affair between Lynn and I ending hung in the air during this visit so much that I was unable to access the meditation and peace that I had felt the year before. Lynn met Mark and his wife Norma, and I've been excited about them meeting, but we were no longer a couple, so what was there to be excited about? I learned that Scott had just broken up with his girlfriend as well, and he was even more down and out than I was. We set up a little tent in a big meadow. The year before, I stayed in the same place by myself and wished for a woman's company. Now I had it, but the stars were not aligned. Timing is everything, and the timing was off. The magic was leaving us too. We held on and made love in that meadow under the blanket of stars, under the bed of Mother Nature. But whatever we had that was so good was leaving us. I had yet to begin processing it all. Instead of dealing with this failing relationship, I was dreaming of climbing again. After all, I was in Yosemite. We wanted our connection to last and held on as long as we could, but reality hit and we started to bicker. She decided to spend the night away from me with a friend who was a park ranger there. Then the next day when I returned to the greenhouse after some cragging, there was a small pile of my clothes and a note saying I needed to call her. I did and she had made her mind up that she was gonna leave. As we talked and she cried, I walked out of the greenhouse. The sun was setting and in the most dramatic orange my eyes had ever seen, like an answer. Lynn asked me if I wanted to go back with her. I had only a few days of vacation left and here was the first woman I'd ever truly fallen in love with slipping away from my life. Do I hold on and change my ways? Reach out to her and tell her our love means so much? And I'll do anything to make it work? A better, stronger man might have. Or a man that is not so fickle and dependent on climbing in the wild to be happy. I made the decision to stay in Yosemite. Immediately, I felt free. Lynn was gone, and all I had to think about now was climbing. Ignorance is bliss. Freedom. There's a lot of talk about it here in the United States, 
We all love freedom. All human beings love freedom. All breathing creatures do. This newfound freedom I was basking in was a false feeling. I had lost love, and that feeling doesn't sink in right away. I guess it's also called denial. The next day, Scott and I went big, climbing the notoriously run-out Stoner's Highway, the perfect recipe to clear the mind and live in the moment. I figured that it would just be a regular outing on the rock that would pose only minor difficulties given the 510 rating and the fact that I've been climbing at that grade for 10 years. We jokingly dubbed ourselves Team Breakup while hiking up the trail to the wall. I was more than eager to do some longer climbing. We'd been festering around the short, one-pitch, well-traveled climbs for the last few days, and I had the itch to get a few hundred feet off the ground. With a game of rock, paper, scissors, it was decided that I would start out with the leading, an easy but loose and crumbly pitch, leading us to the top of the beginning of more difficult climbing. With a game of rock, paper, scissors, it was decided that I would start out the leading, an easy but loose and crumbly pitch, led us up to the beginning of the more difficult climbing. I've always found that when space is gained in the vertical, above the ground, my head space becomes different as well. Reflection is natural when looking around in the vertical world and in nature. That day, my thoughts were with Lynn. They were thoughts of guilt. I led her all the way out to Yosemite to realize that my own selfishness was at the heart of the journey. I wanted to experience being high on the walls, and she was a beginner, and we were broken up. How did everything happen so fast? The meditation and reflection of hanging on the wall is gained through climbing. This day, the climbing demanded some serious focus, much more than I had anticipated. After my first mellow lead, it was Scott's turn on the sharp end. I watched him climb 25 feet out to the left with no gear off the belay. Had he fallen, he would have come violently swinging back my way. So falling wasn't an option. Scott brilliantly completed the sequence, secured more gear, and then climbed another runout section. He arrived at the belay, and then I cleaned the pitch, and soon it was my turn for a runout lead. Scott had set the tone with his incredible, delicate climbing, and I was determined to emulate his style. I climbed up off the belay, maybe five feet, clipped a piton, a relic from the 70s, all rusted, a maybe piece of protection, as in if you fall, maybe it will hold. Then I climbed 20 feet out to the left, heading for a crack system. At this point, I was on a small perch, contemplating my fall, with my toes on some good footholds and my hands on some decent holds as well. I was eyeing the next moves to get to where I could play some pro in a crack who would hold a fall. It's at this point in climbing where complete focus is necessary. I zoned into the moment, delicately stepping up, eyeing a handhold, leaning into it, stepping up to where I could play some gear. I was safe again and climbed up a decently protected crack system to the next belay. Stoner's Highway demanded this type of dangerous, delicate, in-the-moment climbing, pitch after pitch. Scott seemed to get the most difficult pitches with 30 and even 40-foot runouts on 510 climbing. He told me he didn't think he could do the moves if he hadn't just broken up with his girlfriend and was in the state of mind that he was in. I don't think my breakup figured into my risk-taking. I just wanted to be up there climbing on the wall with a friend and reflect. We made it up to the ninth pitch, and it was my turn to lead. The first bolt was a good 20 feet up above the belay, and I couldn't confidently reach it. I climbed back down to Scott, and he went up. He felt the same about the risk. It was too much. We rappelled back to the ground. Rappelling is usually the scary part, but this time there was relief in the air. 
We didn't complete Stoner's Highway, but we'd done enough mind-clearing and thought-provoking climbing that I had that same peace of mind I get after doing a big trad climb. That clarity of being in the moment, the feeling that life is one crazy ride and you have to roll with the punches, no one to fight and when to back away. We ended up running away on Stoner's Highway, and we never came back, speaking for myself. I don't know if I could ever have the nerve to go back, but it was the perfect climb for that moment of recklessness, that feeling of abruptness a breakup can induce. We both had the satisfaction that we didn't give in to the craziness and believe we could do something dangerous that we shouldn't have done. The closure of that breakup didn't come for months, even years, but I had clarity. After this, maybe the best thing would have been to do a big wall. Completely leave the horizontal for a few days. Leave this old, tired, sad world behind. But I was still an office jock, and I was expected back at the college in just a few days. That meant I only had one more big day climb left. I suggested Astro Man, and Mark obliged. He'd already done it, and after the run-out head games I'd played on Stoner's Highway, I knew I was ready for this climb. Astro Man had the reputation. It was a benchmark climb, and she was a beauty. Named after a Jimi Hendrix song and established by John Long, John Backer, and Ron Kauf, three Yosemite legends, the climb was one I thought might usher my abilities into another level. It wasn't. Stoner's Highway was logistically more difficult, but Astro Man was a perfect work of art, some of the finest cracks and corners I'd ever climbed. That day, my goal was to forget about Lynn, pushing those thoughts back to some place in my mind. After Astro Man, I had to find a way home quickly. I was expected back at work in a couple days. Fortunately, an old college buddy, Tori, had just finished film school at UCLA and was planning on heading back to Gunny for the rest of the summer. All I had to do was take a bus to LA and he would give me a ride. I don't know when it all hit me, maybe the endless desert of Utah, or maybe when we crossed back into Colorado and saw that Welcome to Colorado sign. But I'd left home with a woman I thought I might spend the rest of my life with and came home without her, and she would never be in my life again. She was around Gunny for another week before she left the East Coast. When I saw her around town, it was the strangest thing in the world, because we had nothing to share anymore except the past. I went over and exchanged belongings, probably some books or something, maybe music, who knows. I don't remember what, but I remember that setting. It was raining, and her dog, the sweet golden retriever, was confused by the boxes and the moving and why I wasn't around anymore. I don't even remember what we said. I just remember that dog expressing the sadness better than we could. When she left, it sank in. My job became a mess, too. Reduced to half-time, I didn't know what to cut out and what to do. When I was full-time, I was supposed to work 40 hours a week, but anyone in a small organization knows that it's never the case. I was working way more than 40 hours and had built tight relationships. Now I had to say no to a lot of people who were used to me delivering. One day, I learned about the budget and how my job could have been saved, but my supervisor didn't allocate the funds to do so. That was it. I decided. I was done. I'd also gone back to washing dishes part-time to help pay the bills, back to the same job in Crested Butte I'd done off and on for 10 years. My mentor there, the kitchen manager, was always warning me not to get stuck in that line of work to make something better of myself, to build for the future. We talked about writing all the time, and he encouraged me to pursue that path. He was a vagabond dirtbag like me and lived through the 60s and all that. He would live in a tent even in the winter and had just settled out of that life as he closed in on 50 years old. 
He had a son that he never saw. And I think in some ways our friendship helped him with that. His voice was always in the back of my head and I'd felt like I'd let him down. I was going crazy and there was no flow to my existence. I needed out again, but what was I to do? The economy was at an all-time low and I was still blessed enough to have some work. I still had all my benefits at the college. A reasonable man would have stuck it out. I was looking for an escape plan that would lead me away from this situation as soon as possible. I don't know where the idea came from. Probably just looking at a roadmap, old school style. But I decided I might want to move down south to Durango. I started sending out emails to various contacts in the local newspapers in the college there, and I made a quick trip down to visit. One cup of coffee can change your life. I drove the Freedom Mobile down, blazing through some of the craziest mountain passes in Colorado, through the San Juan Mountains, to meet the editor of the Durango Telegraph. We had a mutual contact through the Gunnison paper, and he casually said, sure, you can write for us. It was like a hundred bucks a story, but it was a lead. It was something. I decided right then and there that I'd moved to this town where I'd spent a total hour of my life. I zipped the Freedom Mobile back up to Gunny and told my friends I was leaving. My old college friend, Sean, who just returned there after living in New York City for three years and doing the corporate thing, told me I needed to have some goals, have a plan. What was my plan? I didn't have a plan. I just had to get out of town. I met with the president of the college and told him about my plans to leave. He was dealing with all kinds of woes at the college, mostly resulting from the downturn of the economy, and my departure just seemed to be one more thing. I transitioned out of my job and tried to reach out for things that would keep me sane. Dave and I climbed the painted wall in the Black Canyon. At 2,300 feet, it's the tallest cliff in Colorado. We accidentally spent the night on the wall and cuddled together for warmth. We suffered incredibly, but it energized me and gave me hope in some weird way. After I left my job, I had a few weeks open. It was mid-October, so there wasn't much work to be had washing dishes in Crested Butte, and I got lazy. I made the final plans for my departure. In three years, I accumulated more possessions than would fit in my car, breaking the dirt bag rule. It took days and days to get rid of everything I didn't need. The TV, the bed, the furniture, the microwave, the plates and the forks and knives and cleaning products. All those things you just don't need when you don't know where you're going to live next. My plan was to travel and climb for a month, then circle back down to Durango and move there for good. I'd lined up a partner, Gene, and we agreed to take his truck. A week later, the truck's engine blew up. We had two options, take the Freedom Mobile or not do the trip at all. Of course, we rolled the dice and put the Freedom Mobile on the road. I put everything I owned in the Freedom Mobile. The day before I left, it was all gray, imminent winter on the way. I've been renting an apartment for my college writing mentor, George Slibley, and just before I left, we had a little conversation. Like many great writers, and George is a great writer if there ever is one, he's a simple man of words and conversation. Now in his 70s, George has seen it all. He's married once, had children, divorced, and then didn't find his second wife until his 50s. He knew what I was chasing, and the present situation could have been summed up with his one look at the graffitied red, white, and blue car. He noted that the Freedom Mobile was weighed down so back that the back shocks were almost touching the tire. This was a big bet I was waging. What if this thing broke down 10 miles outside of Gunnison? What was the plan then? I had hardly any money in my bank account. The goal that day was to simply get to Telluride where Gene was. And if I could do that, 
I was gone from Gunny forever. Right, that is episode 14 of the Dirtbag State of Mind podcast from the Climbing Zine. I am Luke Mihal. So much there in that episode. One thing that I, I really want to point out is this boss that I had. And this boss, I described her as the Wicked Witch of the West. And she had a picture of Bob Knight. And I think a lot of people, who, if you're not old school basketball fans, you might not know who he is, but he was this legendary um, coach for just throwing fits and he would he just was kind of like Trump actually (laughs) I really had my battles with this um, this boss and and she was really the reason I did leave that job and I was upset because I felt like I did a good job and I was really contributing to my alma mater and I love the mountains and I love the area and she knew nothing about the mountains I'm so thankful for that boss because I quit and I came down to Durango and I truly found my life's path. And I was meant to be a freelance writer, a publisher, an entrepreneur. I was meant not to work for anyone but myself. And I just think that that situation, she might not have been great to me, but I'm so grateful it happened because a really terrible situation led to um, a great situation and I really love my life down here in Durango now. So anyone who, you know, maybe you're, you're in a situation now or, and this is also relevant because we're in a big economic recession then. So it was really problematic to quit a decent job. Um, but I'm so glad I did. I'm not telling you, you should quit your job, but, um, something that seemed so bad at the time ended up leading me to such a great place. You can support the climbing zine in this podcast by checking out the show notes, supporting us on Patreon, and by subscribing. And you can still subscribe even if you don't have a reliable address. You can choose the dirtbag treatment option and we'll check in with you each time an issue comes out. Music tracks come courtesy of Ketza and Simon Panrucker. Our digital editor and producer is Chad Rich. For the Dirtbag State of Mind podcast, I'm Luke Mihal, coming at you from my home in Durango, Colorado.